Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And now, your environmental headlines. The Indiana Environmental Reporter says bipartisan bill seeking to lay the foundation for carbon market participation has advanced through the U.S. Senate, but new research indicates that getting farmers to participate in the voluntary program may be difficult. The Growing Climate Solutions Act, introduced by Senator Mike Braun of Indiana and Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan, passed the Senate by a vote of 92 to 8. The bill seeks to standardize the verification process for carbon markets and create a clearinghouse that would make participation easier for farmers, ranchers, and foresters. Carbon markets basically allow companies to pay others to reduce greenhouse gas emissions for them. Companies can buy certificates called carbon credits that are promises that a specific amount of carbon dioxide will be stored in the ground and kept from entering the atmosphere. The process, called carbon sequestration, is accomplished by undertaking certain farming practices like no-till farming or planting cover crops for years. Bronze Bill encourages carbon sequestration sequestration without discouraging greenhouse gas emissions. Researchers at Purdue University found that even with full participation across the country, all U.S. cropland could sequester only a small portion of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions through a change in tilling techniques. Quote, if we put all U.S. cropland acres into no-till, how much carbon could we sequester then? End quote said Nathan Thompson, Associate Professor of Agricultural Economics at Purdue. That would be about 123 million metric tons of carbon a year. And putting that on a different scale, U.S. carbon emissions, that's about 2% of total U.S. carbon emissions from all sectors. And so you can see that while there is a positive impact that can be had, we need to be a little more realistic about what the role of agriculture can be in the broader kind of climate change discussion as it relates to carbon sequestration. As we reported before, residents of the small rural town of Dale, Indiana, have been battling a proposed Riverview Energy coal to diesel refinery for the last four years. Now the nearby town of Santa Claus is getting into the act. Recently, the town board president met with their state representative and Riverview Energy officials to see if Santa Claus would help provide water for the project. 
The Santa Claus board president then sent a letter to the Dale town board president offering to work on the water part of the project. The offer was to supply the almost two million gallons of water per day that Riverview would need and to take the wastewater from the Riverview refinery if it's built. For this plan to work, Santa Claus would have to make some changes, including running pipes to Dale and expanding its existing wastewater treatment plant. The citizens groups fighting the refinery said, quote, this meeting was done just like anything to do with Riverview Energy. It was done in secret without any of the other town board members in Santa Claus. They were told about it after the fact, end quote. The citizens groups called for supporters to attend the Santa Claus town hall meeting on July 12th to protest the water plan. There are many unanswered questions about this proposition. Citizens of Santa Claus need to be heard and ask questions about how the plan would affect their water rates and what would be done with the wastewater after it's treated. The Dale citizens groups wonder if their state representative is offering to use state funds to supply the water. If so, they wonder why the money isn't being used to improve their crumbling infrastructure instead. If this refinery is such a good thing, why all the secrecy? Meanwhile, the citizens groups, along with Valley Watch and representatives from the environmental law firm Earth Justice, are in the midst of appealing in Marion Superior Court, the State Office of Adjudication's decision to deny their appeal of the air quality permit for the refinery. Greenpeace UK's investigative journalism arm and the British Channel 4 News leaked footage of ExxonMobil lobbyists that prove that the company continues to fight against the U.S. efforts to tackle the climate crisis. The videos feature Keith McCoy, a senior director in ExxonMobil's Washington, D.C. government affairs team, and Dan Easley, who was a senior director for federal relations. On the Zoom call, McCoy said that the company doubted the scientific consensus about the climate crisis and targeted centrist lawmakers like Senator Joe Manchin in hopes of scaling back President Joe Biden's infrastructure package, claiming that there's nothing illegal about their actions. Environmental advocates have taken the videos as proof of previous investigations that ExxonMobil has worked to undermine efforts to address the mounting climate crisis. Harpy eagles are the largest eagles in the Americas and one of the largest eagle species in the world. A fully adult female harpy eagle can weigh up to 22 pounds. A recent report has found that these large eagles are running out of room as their tropical forest homes are rapidly being cut down. The only harpy eagles in the U.S. are in zoos. This eagle needs to live in tropical forests in order to hunt. They feed on smaller mammals that live in canopy forests like monkeys and sloths, and they need to eat about 28 ounces of food a day to thrive. Harpy eagles also need to live around trees that are 40 to 45 meters tall in order to nest in, the same kind of trees that are cut down by the logging industry in South America, which increases their chances of habitat loss. The Amazon rainforest has already shrunk by about 17% over the last 50 years. As the rate of deforestation increases over the last few years, scientists and researchers worry that less room will make it harder for harpy eagles to successfully mate and maintain their numbers. COVID-19 isn't merely a human disease. 
Animals can catch it too. Species infected so far include domestic cats, lions, tigers, mink, and dogs. In January, three gorillas at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park tested positive, the first such cases in any non-human primate. The gorillas, which were likely infected by an asymptomatic keeper, recovered, in part with medical help. Winston, the troop's 49-year-old leader, who has an underlying heart condition, developed pneumonia and was given antibiotics, heart medication, and monoclonal antibody therapy. That great apes are susceptible to the coronavirus doesn't surprise researchers given the similarity between humans and primates, including gorillas, chimpanzees, and orangutans. The worry now is that these animals could be exposed to COVID-19 in the wild. Contacts in the wild require that humans wear masks. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is considering reintroducing sea otters in Oregon. According to the organization Environmental Action, quote, without sea otters, Oregon's coast is turning into a wasteland, end quote. Generations ago, sea otters were hunted nearly to extinction for their fur along parts of the Pacific Northwest. The animals received endangered species protection in the mid-20th century, but still haven't come back to Oregon. Today, instead of fur trappers, Habitat destruction, pollution, and other factors are keeping the otters from returning to their traditional range in Oregon. In the absence of sea otters, the population of purple sea urchins has mushroomed, choking out the kelp forest ecosystems that so many marine species rely on. Kelp forests, at one time so thick they made certain areas impassable by boats, are disappearing thanks to warming waters and a 10,000% explosion of purple sea urchins, which eat kelp. Healthy kelp forests sustain a diverse range of animals, from shrimp to whales. But today, all along Oregon's coast, lush kelp forests have given way to urchin barrens, devoid of life except for hundreds of the spiky invertebrates. The otter's return could change all that. Sea otters are one of the few species that eat urchins, so they could greatly help keep Oregon's urchins in check. The Fish and Wildlife Service can restore the sea otter to its original habitat and save the ecosystems of Oregon's coast simultaneously. Mansions are very bad for the climate, and some critics are calling for banning them. In the architectural field, the term mansions often refers to houses that are 5,000 square feet or larger. Mansions are a significant reason that the world's wealthiest 1% of people have a carbon footprint 175 times the size of those in the bottom 10%. Luxurious living comes with climate destruction. A 2020 study found that Americans living in mansions in wealthy neighborhoods are responsible for an average of 25% more greenhouse gas emissions than those living in more modest houses in poorer areas mostly because heating, cooling, and powering more space require more energy. A 2019 report noted that building gigantic houses, those larger than 25,000 square feet, necessitates removing 380 trees, while the average house requires removing just 20. Mansions size means more concrete and glass, both carbon intensive to produce, thereby increasing mansions carbon footprint. Kate Wagner, architecture critic and creator of the blog McMansion Hell, points out, quote, 
Sometimes, entire little woods are torn down to build these subdivisions full of mansions. So you're losing trees, which are part of the carbon cycle, and you're losing space for wildlife." End quote. In a victory for pipeline opponents and environmental justice advocates, Plains All-American Pipeline LP officials have announced that they're abandoning their plan to build the Bihalia Connection Crude Oil Pipeline through parts of Memphis. The 50-mile project was the object of opposition because it would threaten the area's high-quality drinking water aquifer and would hit a black Memphis community hard. Most of the pipeline's path would have avoided the outer edges of Memphis's suburbs in northern Mississippi, which are almost exclusively white, but seven miles of the pipeline would have run from a refinery through neighborhoods in southwest Memphis, which is 97% black and already burdened with industrial pollution. A small group of Memphis community residents met last fall and formed Memphis Community Against the Pipeline. They joined with the Southern Environmental Law Center, a local organization called Protect Our Aquifer, and the Sierra Club to fight the pipeline. The groups convinced Memphis City Council and Shelby County Commissioners to set up obstacles to Bihalia and filed lawsuits against the pipeline company's attempts to take land for the project. Justin J. Pearson, a leader of the opposition, observed in an online video posted shortly after the company capitulated, quote, if anybody is asking whether the movement is alive in Memphis, you have your answer, end quote. The record-breaking heat waves that struck regions of North America, including British Columbia and Canada, may have led to the deaths of more than a billion intertidal animals like mussels that inhabit the coastline. Researchers found that many animals essentially cooked in their own shells due to the heat as temperatures reached 122 degrees Fahrenheit, far hotter than the 100 degrees Fahrenheit that the mussels can withstand. The heat wave killed humans, too. British Columbia's chief coroner announced last Friday that from June 25th to July 1st, the region's death toll was three times higher than normal due to the extreme temperatures. More than 700 people died. The heat wave also led to dozens of deaths across the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. as well. More shellfish died in that region as well. Simon Fraser University ecologist John Moore says warm water in the Canadian rivers with some tr Fraser tributaries reaching 70 degrees Fahrenheit during the heat wave is bad news for salmon there. Warmer water holds less oxygen, so it'll have health challenges for the fish, Moore said. Bad news for Fraser salmon is bad news for the endangered fish-eating orcas that divide their time between Canada and the United States. The endangered orcas went missing from Washington waters for nearly three months this spring, the third year in a row they abandoned their usual springtime habitat. A lack of Chinook salmon headed for the Fraser River, especially the big fat spring-run Chinooks that swim far upriver this time of year, is believed to be the main cause of the orca springtime absences. Elders recently united in an action against fossil fuels in their 2021 Walk for Our Grandchildren, in which grandparents traveled 180 miles over nine days from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Wilmington, Delaware. Along the way, they held 18 events with frontline organizers fighting fossil fuel expansion and environmental racism. 
The walk culminated in a nonviolent direct action blockading the doors of a Chase Bank credit office in Wilmington in rocking chairs. Chase Bank is the number one funder of fossil fuel extraction in the U.S. The bank is invested to the tune of $268 billion, $71 billion more than its closest competitor. All 15 grandparents arrested while blocking Chase Bank were released the same day. A short film documenting the action is in process. Though the walk for our grandchildren is over, the elders are planning their next direct action together. They're setting their sights on the frontline fights against the Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota and the Mountain Valley pipeline in West Virginia and Virginia. Elder-focused actions have been a recent highlight of both fights, with lockdowns and rocking chairs inspired by the actions at Chase. Good news. Animal welfare <coughs> requirements are back in the organic standard. It means that organic meat and dairy producers will soon be required to raise food animals under more humane conditions. In January 2017, the Obama administration passed the Organic Livestock Poultry Practices Rule, which brought humane standards for organic food animals. Then Trump's U.S. Department of Agriculture weakened the organic standards in 2018 by withdrawing those animal welfare requirements. The Center for Food Safety responded by filing a lawsuit challenging the withdrawal of the rule to provide cleaner, safer conditions for organic food animals. The Biden administration's Department of Agriculture is now adding those animal welfare requirements back into the organic standard. Among other things, the new organic standard will require organic poultry companies to give their food animals meaningful access to the outdoors. Under the new rule, Concrete porches will no longer count as outdoor access. Implementation of the new rule means there's a chance to make the humane living requirements even stronger this time around. For example, the rule's latest version doesn't include minimum space requirements for organic pigs, but at least there's now the opportunity to strengthen that standard. Giant pandas are no longer considered an endangered species in China thanks to years of successful conservation efforts. The increase in their population reflects the country's efforts in protecting their habitats, officials recently announced. This comes four years after the International Union for Conservation of Nature changed the giant panda's status from an endangered species to vulnerable. Over the years, China has worked on expanding and protecting the bamboo's bamboo forest ecosystem alongside creating large mountain reserves for the pandas to roam in. Other vulnerable species like Siberian tigers and Asian elephants have benefited from the conservation efforts as well. Despite the good news, the adorable species isn't out of the woods yet. The climate crisis could destroy more than 30% of bamboo forests by the end of this century. One of the giants of the deep is shrinking before our eyes, a new study says. The younger generation of critically endangered North Atlantic right whales are on average about three feet shorter than whales were 20 years ago, drone and aircraft data show in a study in the journal Current Biology. Scientists say humans are to blame. Entanglements with fishing gear, collisions with ships, and climate change moving their food supply north are combining to stress and shrink these large whales, the study says.
Right whales feed mostly on copepods, small crustaceans that live throughout the water column, from floating at the surface to buried at the bottom of the sea. They are very small, so right whales need to eat a lot of them to obtain enough energy. Scientists estimate that they eat more than 2,000 pounds of copepods and other tiny food animals each day. Diminishing size is a threat to the species' overall survivor because the whales aren't having as many offspring. They aren't big enough to nurse their young or even get pregnant, study authors say. These marine mammals used to grow to 46 feet on average, but now the younger generation is on track to average not quite 43 feet, according to the study. There are only about 356 North Atlantic right whales left, down from 500 in 2010 and 600 in 2000, said study co-author Amy Knowlton, a senior scientist at the New England Aquarium. The animals of the Galapagos Islands are receiving a helping hand in the fight against invasive rats. Drones deployed two years ago have finally eradicated rodents on the Seymour, Norte, and Mosquera Islands. Known for being home to unique species like the famous giant tortoise and marine iguanas, the islands have had some outside species introduced to their ecosystem. One of them is invasive rats that are problematic since there are no natural predators for them on either island, damaging the biodiversity. Researchers estimate that rodent infestations are responsible for more than 80% of the known extinction of wildlife on the islands. Eradication efforts were eventually deemed necessary to protect the native wildlife. In 2019, Galapagos National Park began deploying drones to drop poisoned bait into areas with large populations of rats. The islands are finally rat-free after several rounds of baiting and observation. Another problem that needs addressing on the Galapagos is illegal shark fishing. The waters are considered a preserve, but Chinese boats are fishing at night and taking thousands for their fins. A new BP fossil fuel project may threaten a biodiversity hotspot and worsen the climate crisis. Despite pledges to become a sustainability-supporting company, BP is planning to dig for the deepest natural gas in Africa, which is near what is believed to be the largest cold-water coral reef on the planet. The project will be a natural gas field that's set to be located about two miles beneath the ocean surface off the coast of Senegal and Mauritania. Construction has already begun and is expected to be completed within the next 20 years. Despite concern from environmental activists and the risk the project poses to the coral reef, it is being promoted as an opportunity for economic growth in the area. The coral reef lies a quarter mile below the surface of the Atlantic Ocean, stretching alongside most of the Mauritania and down to Senegal. It is 300 miles long and took around 200,000 years to grow. Scientists believe that it's the largest known cold water reef in the world. In the seas around it, endangered or vulnerable shark, turtle, and whale species are likely present, and water birds stop to feed as they make their journey along one of the major global migration corridors. BP has a long record of environmental damage. If this project is completed in 20 years, then it's likely to be a source of natural gas for several decades. Given the need for the globe to be off fossil fuels by 2100, this project appears to disregard that objective.
For Eco Report, I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And I'm Juliana Daly. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. Hike around Ogle Lake at Brown County State Park on Friday, July 16th from 10 to 11 a.m. Meet at the Ogle Lake parking area for a guided hike on Trail 7. The trail is about one and a quarter mile long and is considered moderate. Learn how to identify venomous snakes of Indiana at McCormick's Creek State Park on Sunday, July 18th from 2 to 2.45 p.m. Meet naturalist Barbara in the Nature Center program room and see our resident copperhead. Enjoy compass play at McCormick's Creek State Park on Tuesday, July 20th from 10 to 10.30 a.m. Are you dependent on your GPS? Learn other useful ways to navigate when the battery dies. Play a game as you learn to navigate with the help of the sun and a compass. Meet Dinah at the Nature Center. Experience an evening of peace and serenity on Griffey Lake during the full moon on Friday, July 23rd from 8.30 to 10 p.m. at the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve. Navigate the lake and watch the night sky light up the water. Watercraft, paddles, and life jackets will be provided. Bring a headlamp in case you need it. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. There will be a kayak outing at the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Saturday, July 24th from 1 to 6 p.m. Join the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area's naturalist on a 2.8-mile kayak trip around Main Pool West 1. You will need to bring your own kayak drinking water, sunscreen, and a life jacket. Meet in the parking lot by the Goose Pond NRCS sign on Highway 59. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. David Lyman assembled the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Myself, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar. 
Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.